You know, there's always been a battle, both inside and outside of the church, between the law and our liberty in Christ. The law is the Old Testament, many believe. The law are the standards that are set by God, not only in the Old, but also in the, Old Test- in the New Testament as well. There are some standards, some qualifications, some ways in which the Bible speaks and addresses us and how we then should live as followers of Christ and those of us who believe in Jehovah or God or Yahweh. But then there are those who want to then sort of highlight the liberty that we have in Christ and then command that we're no longer under the law, but we now are under liberty and we're under freedom and that there's no correlation now to the freedom, the liberty that I have in Christ and the law. And as a matter of fact, if you want to be legalistic and hold up the standard of the law, then I want to point out some strategic, specific things that are in the law that you're not abiding by today. And so they seek to justify their liberty or the claim that they have or the misunderstanding they have in their liberty in Christ in response to those of us who still say, no, even though there's liberty, there's still the law. So what is our responsibility toward the freedom that we have in Christ, this liberty that we have in Jesus? Is it a matter of the legalism versus the liberty in Christ? Is there such a thing as a different interpretation, understanding the law in the way that we see it? How many of you watch television on a regular basis, especially you watch the news? Anybody get your news from television? How many of you get your news from the newspaper? Raise your hand. Any? Just from the newspaper. You guys are old school, okay? How many of you get it from television and only television? That's where you get all of your news. How many of you get it from the internet? Okay. It's a bunch from the internet. Not everything you read on the internet is true. You know that, right? But not everything that's reported on the news is also true. So we have to be really careful. But how many of you saw this week, I posted it on my Facebook page, about this doctor who works for Planned Parenthood and who is eating a meal while she is describing aborting babies harvesting their body parts for financial gain. Before the course of the day, she has a list of organs, of body parts that she is looking for. And as she is performing the abortion of these babies in these wombs, she is using a sonogram or maybe some method of trying to determine where the best Organs can be harvested from which baby that she is aborting, and she will intentionally pull the baby out by the feet, surgically removing the body parts as she is performing the abortion so that she can then later put them on the market for the highest bidder to buy. They're looking for lungs, looking for hearts. They're harvesting body parts of babies. For sale. And when asked, what about the law? She said, it's subject to interpretation of the one doing the abortion. Is that true? Is the law that God has given us subject to the interpretation of the one doing the interpretation? Or does God have a standard by which we are then to judge all of our actions? 
Yes, we have freedom and liberty in Christ, but with our freedom, that freedom demands a responsibility to live righteously. Our liberty is not a license to interpret the law any way we deem necessary or any way the Supreme Court deems necessary to fit our cultural trends so that we might then live in accordance to a law that we have redefined, not the one that God has defined. When I saw that, I wept. I grieved, I was saddened when I heard this doctor talking about a fetus as if it was something that she could then cut and harvest for profit and for gain for Planned Parenthood. We have fallen to an all-time low in the United States of America. And yet the church doesn't seem all that concerned. I spoke to a young man not long ago when I was in this debate over this funeral thing where we did not allow a homosexual LGBT group to sing at a funeral who wrote me before the end of the day informing me that 50% of gays he knows are Christian. 50% of gays that he knows are Christians. While we are set free from the condemnation of the law and we are set free from the control of the law and while we are set free from the condemnation of sin and the control of sin, we have not been set free to get this liberty that we have in Christ to justify our sin and to reinterpret and redefine what sin is and what sin isn't. God's standards have not changed. And while we have a freedom from the law, we have a responsibility that demands that we live righteously under the lordship of Jesus Christ. My response to him is that while you can sin as a Christian, you are not then to continue to live in sin as a Christian. You see, as believers in our freedom, we are still sinners and we are still prone to sin. And because of that, 1 John 1, 9, God says to us that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The fact is that once we're saved doesn't mean we stop sinning. But we should never get to the place and the point in our lives where we use our freedom to justify the sin that we committed, we are committing and call our sin righteous when in fact God says it is unrighteous, it is unholy. Do we have a right then to use our bodies any way we so choose in the freedom that we have in Christ or do we have a responsibility in that freedom? Let's take a look at what God said in his word. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is interesting where he talks about our freedom and how it demands responsibility that we, re, that we live responsibly. This isn't really the first time that the Apostle Paul has talked about this. He talked about it in Romans chapter 6. We studied a couple of, maybe two years ago when we went through 6, 7 and partial, partially 8. When in chapter 6, the Apostle Paul says, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in God's word, he said, should we go on sinning so that grace may abound? By no means. 
Because we are saved by grace through faith, and that it is not of ourselves, but it is the gift of God, doesn't justify then our freedom to be able to live under that grace and just indulge or enjoy that grace or cheapen that grace by continuing to live in sin. When we do that, we cheapen the grace of God and the sacrifice of Christ. Now, in reality, it's easy for us to really hold up the banner of homosexuality and say, you know, go get them, pastor. But what about the other sins of the church? How can we stand in judgment of others' sins without taking an honest, serious look at our own sins and seeing if there's some justification in the fact that we are then using our liberty wrongly and we are not acting responsibly toward our own sin. And so we see in this text where under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul, like in Romans 6 and like James, in his whole letter to the church, Show me your faith without works, and I'll show you my works by my, my faith by my works. And that whole struggle of the church. And so I want us to take a look at those of us who are in Christ today and how, because of our freedom, that freedom demands responsibility. So in Christ, take a look at your outline. I have a responsibility to, first of all, maximize my freedom. There's a, there's a, there's a sort of a a force from the Holy Spirit through the penmanship of the Apostle Paul to encourage us to maximize the freedom that we have in Christ. How do we do that? How do we make the most of the freedom that we have in Christ? By first of all, remembering my past condition. We maximize what we have in Christ by always constantly remembering our past position. We had a service here recently. Uh, Mel was, we had a service here last Thursday and one of the things that Pastor Gale said about Mel is when he was writing out his testimony for E.E., his past was recorded in very short sentences, and then what Christ had done was in very large, you know, very, he was very verbose because his past was his past, and his present and his future was greater than his past. And while that is true, we should never forget from whence we came from. It's important for us to understand, if we're going to enjoy the freedom that we have, to understand fully where we once were before we came to faith in Christ. And some of us were saved at very young ages, and so we don't have a whole lot of a past to forget. But those of you who were saved later in life understand fully what the Apostle Paul understood when he shared his testimony remembering his past in countless of other writings to other churches in the New Testament, constantly referring and referencing his past because he wanted to remember where he came from. And he's saying to us, remember from whence you came. Notice in the passage he says, Are to you... Or do you not know that the righteousness will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But notice the first part of verse 11, and such were some of you. He's writing to a church. And he gives a list of nine particular sins. They're just sort of sins that are listed at random. They're not specific sins, but they're randomly listed, I believe, to qualify and condition all sin. And he said, but some of you, such of you were 
of this. And some, not all of them, but some to whom were a part of the church, some of these were involved in some of these sins before they came to faith in Christ. And such were some of you. You used to be like that. And he's bringing them back to what they used to be. There are ex-adulterers. There are ex-pornographers. There are ex-adulterers. There are ex-drunkards. There are ex-sinners. These are people that were once involved in these sins, but now through faith in Christ, they are no longer. And he's taking them back to where they once used to be. And there's a reason for that because they're being tempted to go back to the old life, to where they used to be before they came to faith in Christ. And you say, no, I want you to remember what you used to be and the enslavement of that sin. To remember your past helps you maximize the freedom that you have in Christ because you remember what it was like to lay your head on your pillow at night and wonder about where you were going to spend eternity. You remember where your depravity took you and all of that, all the consequences of that depravity. And so he's saying to maximize your freedom, you need to remember your past, but also we need to reflect upon our present condition. To maximize my freedom, I first need to remember my past, but I must also reflect on my present spiritual condition. He says in the text, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Verse 11, and such were some of you, you used to be, but now you are. Now you are. That you were is in the past tense, and that you were, I like what one commentator said, it's a once and for all activity. You need to write that down. It's a once and for all activity, a once and for all. Once it is done, it is forever done. It's a once and for all. It's not an activity that is to be continually repeated But it's a once and for all. For once you're saved, you are saved. Once you place your faith and trust in Christ, there is a security and a stability that comes that once you're saved, you are saved. He came that we might know that we know that we have eternal life. You once were that, but now you are washed. Now you are sanctified. Now you are justified. You once were dirty, but now you are cleansed. He washed you in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and he wiped the slate clean and you are freely forgiven of all that you committed in the past. So you're cleansed, but notice also you are consecrated. You are sanctified. As we sang in the song earlier, you are now his and he is yours and you are now a holy person who is consecrated, who is committed to him. And that brings us then to the completion of the right standing that we have in Christ. For now we stand in a right position. We are now justified before Jesus. We stand in his righteousness and he sees us through the lens of Christ. And we are now justified with the with slate white clean, with our sins forgiven and We've been set free. Um, you know, I, I live out in the country in Rose Hill, and uh, around springtime, early spring, we always have some of those birds that come around, and they try to build nests in places that you don't want them. And I have a, a walkout in my house, and uh, they, there are two birds, I'm convinced they're male and female, who come back every year. It's got to be the same ones. I can't identify the same ones because they all look alike, but I'm convinced of the same ones who somehow want to build a nest every year in the same spot that I first let them build a nest the first year I was there, but I promised myself after that first year they would not do it a second year because they're nasty. 
I mean, there's poop everywhere. You know, I mean, pardon that if I gross you out, but it's, I had to, it took me a couple of hours to hose down my walkout after they were done and they flew off to wherever they fly off in the wintertime. And so I vowed the second year, that's not happening. And so there's been a constant battle every year since then. And I'm convinced the same birds who keep coming back to the same place wanting to build the same nest and we have this battle. And so this year what I decided to do is I would buy some netting and I would put it up. I, I, I waited a little bit too late, and they already kind of started a nest, and I knocked it out, and then I put the netting up. You know, I went to Home Depot and bought the netting and tacked it up, and, and I had to leave a little place so I could walk in and out, you know? I mean, I, I have to sweep it every time I mow, so I'm kind of a neat freak, so I, I like to do that, and so I, I made a little place where I could walk in and out. It wasn't very big. It was very narrow, but guess what? The birds found the opening. Yeah, and they had been there for about a week when I mowed the grass and realized what they were doing. Yeah, and so I opened the back door from the house into where the netting was, and I'm trying to spook them out through the little way that they found in. But in their panic, guess what? They couldn't find it. And they kept hitting the walls of the house and hitting the netting and not finding it. I tried to open a little bit more, but they still couldn't find it. But finally, after about 10 very long minutes... One made it, and the other followed, and they were now free. They were enslaved. They were in captivity, but now they have been set free. We were once enslaved to sin. But Jesus made a way. He opened a path through faith in him to set us free, and now we must maximize our freedom by living responsibly for him. You were once in bondage. You were once enslaved. And there was a moment in time where he said, look, here's the escape. Here's the way out. I provided my son Jesus to die on a cross for you. And through faith in him, if you'll believe in him and trust in him, he will set you free. And when you did that, he cleansed you of your sin. He sanctified you and he justified your sin by putting your sin on the cross of Christ where he died in your place. He who knew no sin became sin for you and died in your place so that you could be free. And Paul is saying, people, don't be deceived. Don't fly back into the cage of sin, for you've been set free and live in that freedom. So we must not only maximize our freedom, but we must also maintain our freedom. For once we are set free, there's a responsibility that we have to live free. So how do we maintain our freedom? By first choosing the right option. There's a, there's a choice. Isn't it great that God didn't make us all robots where we just automatically do what he tells us to do? He gave us, he created us in his image, and part of that image, I believe, is the freedom of choice. Even though he's a sovereign God, we have choices that we can make. Don't tell me or ask me how does that work. I don't know. But I just know it works. And so here we have a choice to maintain our freedom and he wants us to be decisive in those choices. Notice he says in verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but, not, but I will not be dominated by anything. This phrase, all things are lawful for me, is a, is a little phrase that they would repeat from time to time to justify what they wanted to do. Well, I can do this because I'm no longer under the law. All things are lawful for me now. 
I've been set free from the law. There are no consequences. There's no condemnation now. So therefore, I can just live my life any way I want to without any regard to what God says because I've been set free from the law. I'm under grace, so therefore, I am set free from the law. So Paul takes that little, little verbiage that you're using to justify their sin and their depravity, and he says, all things are lawful for me, kind of a rhetorical question, but not all things are helpful. Not, I will not be con- controlled by anything. And that word not is a double negative in both of these sentences. Not. That means absolutely, positively, under no conditions are we then to make choices that aren't helpful. The word that you may have in your Bible is beneficial. So the choices that we make must be Beneficial. They must be conducive to spiritual maturity and spiritual growth, to progress in the likeness of Christ. And the concept, the idea, and I wish we had more time to, to talk about this, is that I'm not only concerned about my spiritual progress in looking and becoming more like Jesus, but I'm also to be concerned about the church and, and others. I have a responsibility here in not only making choices that are beneficial for me personally, but beneficial for the body of Christ, for the church, for the community of faith. I have a responsibility for others, and I must make those choices based upon what's not only beneficial for me, but what's beneficial for the church and the kingdom of God. And if it doesn't benefit the advancement of the gospel and my maturing and the advancement of the church, I don't choose it. Or even though I have the freedom to do so, I consider the benefit that it brings to me, to the church, and to the gospel of Jesus in the community in which I live. But notice, all things may be lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. I will not be dominated by anything. What is the last part of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5? Love, joy, peace, patience, and the last one is self-control. Self-control. I will not be dominated by anything. And you can lose your freedom in Christ by allowing yourself to be dominated once again by sin. While you may not be condemned by that sin, it can control your life. Try looking at a little bit of pornography and see what happens. Tell that to an alcoholic who took just one or two drinks of alcohol. You can be controlled by your sin if you're not careful. And we must make sure that we make wise choices because we don't want to lose the freedom that we have in Christ because if we're not careful, we can be dominated by things. You know what? Okay, let's talk about some very small things. Television, for example. Are you dominated and controlled by television? Can you function without it being on? Let's take your, your cell phones. Can you put them down for one minute? Or do they dominate your life? The other day, Pat and I were having dinner, and I watched a family over there. My mom had a cell phone. The dad had a cell phone. The kids had a cell phone. They were eating out dinner to spend time with the family, and everybody's like this. They didn't speak a word to each other. All things may be lawful, but is it beneficial? Am I dominated by those things? Now, we can talk about the big sins, but what about the small things that we might on a day-to-day basis have, have a little struggle with. So we need to choose the right option 
to be decisive about what we're going to choose. We need to secondly be controlling by controlling my appetite. I maintain my freedom by controlling my natural appetite. How many of you are hungry right now and you're thinking about lunch? Come on, be honest. You're thinking about lunch already. Notice what he says. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy both one and the other. Now, what he's writing to are those who are saying, you know, God gave me these natural appetites and urges, and therefore, I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry. I'm just going to live it up. He made me for food and food for me, and therefore, I'm just going to just, just eat it all up. What do you say about that, doctor? <laughs> Anybody who's taking his course knows that he doesn't believe that. We need to be really, really careful because you see what he's saying in this text is that the body and the food are not in and of themselves eternal. Food's not eternal. Food is temporary. And we need to be really, really careful that we choose the eternal over the temporary. And the body, yes, it is eternal because we will return for our bodies, but food is temporary. So we need to be really, really careful and decisive in what we put into our stomachs. But we also need to be really, really decisive in our sexuality. In our sexuality, he says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord of the body. We saw last week that God made male and female, male and female. And he made male and females, we saw last week, to procreate, to have children. And there are some denominations out there that say that the only way and the only reason you should be physically intimate with a male and a female, a husband and a wife, under the framework of marriage, that's what he's talking about, that you should use your sexuality only under the framework of marriage in which God intended, because he says that when he created Adam and Eve, he intended Adam and Eve to be married, to be one person, to be one flesh. Under the framework of marriage, husband and wife can and should enjoy physical intimacy. Because these are natural tendencies and urges that we have to be connected with someone else. And, and, and while physical intimacy isn't the deepest intimacy you can have with another person, there's the emotional and there's the physical, but there's the spiritual, which I believe is the deeper spiritual intimacy part. Most couples never get to the spiritual intimacy. They, they start with the emotional because she made your heart go like this. And then there's the physical after the I do's in the marriage. And then there's the spiritual. And he's saying here, I think, that while God made us, male and female, desiring physical intimacy with each other, it's interesting. I'm going to say this really as a side note and then stop. You know, in, when, when I do marriage counseling, there's always a part about sexuality between a man and a woman, husband and wife, after they get married. And it's always awkward. It's kind of like being in the principal's office talking about things you shouldn't be talking about when you're with the pastor. And I think some are always surprised when I say, God made you male and female. And it's okay to enjoy your sexuality. As long as it's under God's standard of marriage. There's a reason guys are attracted to girls and girls are attracted to guys. And there's a reason why boys and girls sit in a car while they're smooching and dating and they're tempted to go beyond what they know they should not do. It's a natural thing. 
But God intended for that natural thing to be only under the framework of marriage. It's not just about teenagers, it's about senior adults, because senior adults can be as bad as teenagers. Can I get an amen to that? Come on. Some of the unmarried senior adults out there, you guys fall in love and you're as bad as teenagers. Be disciplined in your stomach and your sexuality and submit yourself in verse 14. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Our bodies have been raised with Christ and therefore we have been set free physically to enjoy the natural urges and tendencies that God made us to enjoy, but only under his design and according to his desires. I think that's what Paul's saying. Number three, maintain my freedom by choosing the right option. By two, controlling my appetites. By three, committing my body to Christ. By committing my body to Christ. Your body doesn't belong to you. Listen to me, teenagers and senior adults. Your body doesn't belong to you. To do with it whatever you choose when you come to faith in Christ. It now belongs to Jesus. Notice what he writes in the text. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, back to Genesis where we saw last week, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. We don't become one flesh with Christ. We become one in spirit with Jesus. Notice the next verse. So therefore flee from sexual immorality. For every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. I think here he's saying that as we dedicate our bodies to Christ, we need to reconsider that our bodies actually in spirit belong to the Lord. We have been united with him in spirit. So therefore we are one spiritually with Christ and that oneness spiritual with him unites us with him and so we refuse then to be unfaithful to Jesus so when you use your bodies in ways that are outside of the design and the desire that God had for your life you are prostituting your relationship with Christ when I look where I should not see I am prostituting or polluting the eyes that belong to Jesus when I'm thinking thoughts that I should not think as I lust for things I should not I am polluting corrupting the mind that actually belongs to Christ when I do things with these hands that are inappropriate and unbecoming of Christ followers it's not just about my body these hands belong to Jesus and I am polluting and corrupting his hands For these members of our bodies now belong to him, and we must always refuse to be unfaithful. To recognize and to realize that when we are tempted, notice he says, to flee, to run, to go in the opposite direction, and refuse to use our body parts for sexual immoralities that really are against the body of Christ 
rather than just against my own body. But to be inclusive, notice what Paul says at the last verse, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Notice and realize that when I'm totally depraved, the extent of that depravity. Romans chapter 1 talks about sexual depravity in a way that, that often confuses the church and those outside the church. For those who once could tell that there was a God and who lived as if there was a God and knew that there was a designer and knew that there was a desire, gave that up, ignored God, and lived as they pleased. And God gave them up to sexual perversions, men with men and women with women. And they were sinning against not just the Lord, but against their own body. There's a, there's a depravity with sexuality, immoral sexuality, that is unlike any other sin that we commit. And I think when we are sexually immoral, we are not only corrupting and polluting and affecting or infecting the body of Christ, but we are hurting ourselves as well. For I'm convinced that sexual immorality always lingers forever in the brain. It always impacts the emotional well-being of people. I have sat for 38 years in counseling. And sexual immorality affects forever. It cuts deeply. It hurts immensely. And when, when parents are sexually immoral with their children, that so impacts the child for the rest of their lives. There's something about sexual immorality that affects the mind, the emotion, the heart, and the soul of a person and the people that you're committing it with. And we need to be really, really careful because our bodies belong to the Lord. Notice then lastly, by consecrating my body to Christ, to be devoted to committing to purity. We need to be committed to purity. Notice what he says in verse 16. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. How do I devote to purity? By acknowledging, first of all, that the Holy Spirit of Christ resides within me. Not only do my body parts and my Am I a member of the body of Christ? But I have the indwelling Holy Spirit residing within me. I am a dwelling place for God's Holy Spirit. My body is a temple of the Spirit. If, if you came in here this morning to worship and you saw someone with a, a sledgehammer starting to just beat up these pews, what would you do? Well, how could you do that to the house of God, you would say? 
No one, no one here would think of, of destroying or damaging the body, uh, the building called the church, because we consider this somewhat of a sacred place. But I'm here to tell you that, that you are a sacred temple in which the Holy Spirit dwells within you. And when you do anything to this temple, it is destructive to the Holy Spirit who dwells within you. Treat your body as the temple of the Holy Spirit. For he dwells within you. That's what Paul is saying. And affirm then that he is Lord over your body. Notice the words, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. What was the price? The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus on the cross. It cost him his life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one only son that whosoever believeth in him would not perish but have everlasting life. It cost him his life so that you could be set free. And once you are now set free, you are no longer enslaved to sin, but you're enslaved to Christ. Let me tell you something right off the bat. You're going to be a slave to sin or a slave to Christ. So you choose. What Paul says. And then lastly, notice we must always seek to glorify God with our body. Always seek to glorify God with our bodies, to honor him, to glorify him, and to give him praise through our bodies, for they are the temple of the Holy Spirit. It gets cold in Wichita. Anybody know that? I know right now we don't think about that much, but it gets pretty cold. And in the wintertime, couple of years back, I remember there was like five or six weeks when it was like almost zero. You guys remember that? It was cold. I thought I had moved a, a tundra or something. And for a long period of time, it was cold. And I had a hard time thawing out. Now, I remember going outside and shoveling snow for a couple hours, the old-fashioned way. I didn't have, like, my neighbor up the street. I saw him with those electric things, you know, blowing smoke. I'm up there doing this, you know. So I'm still kind of old school. I still have a, a mower that pushes itself, but I walk behind it. I get it. Maybe one of these days I'll get me a riding mower. But until then, I'm shoveling snow, freezing to death. A little bit of my face exposed, and even though I have gloves on, my hands are cold. I'm cold. I know if I don't go in pretty soon, I'm going to have frostbite. And I go inside, take my gloves off, Patty's got the fire going, and I do this. Why do I do that? To warm my hands. Now, when I initially came inside, my hands were still cold. I come from the cold and into the warmth. And inside of the warm house, I take my gloves off and put them up against the fireplace to warm my hands. For just a moment, my hands are still extremely cold. But they're beginning to feel the warmth of the fire. And little by little, the cold is dissipating and the warmth is beginning to take over. And my hands are becoming warm like the fire. The point I want to make is this. We must get closer and closer to Christ because the closest and the closer we get to Christ, the more like him we become. And if you remove yourself from him in, in the coldness and the deadness of the world, your love like the first church that Christ spoke of, you can lose your first love. Meaning you can lose your warmth. 
But as we nestle up against the fire and we stick our hands and our hearts and our minds and our lives there, pretty soon the coldness begins to dissipate and the warmth of the fire of Jesus in his spirit within us begins to reside within us and begins to slowly transform us into the likeness of Jesus. So today, as we observe the Lord's Supper, as our deacons come forward, I want you to bow your head and close your eyes for just a minute, and I want you to draw closer to the very presence of Jesus. And as you draw closer to the presence of Jesus, I want you to sense the warmth of his spirit who can cleanse you from all unrighteousness. It doesn't matter what you've done today. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Snuggle up to the fire of the Holy Spirit in your heart today. And let the fire of the Holy Spirit purify your heart, cleanse you, consecrate you, and give you a right standing with Jesus today. Joy.